The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. How's everyone doing? If we haven't met before, I am Dave. I am the high school pastor here at TBC, but also get to preach up here about once a month as well. So it's really good to see you all today. I hope you had a great spring break if you got to have a spring break. Uh, so good to see you all back from that. So we are continuing our series. We finished uh, First John last week. So the video is a little bit off because it, it just mentions First John. And, uh, but this week and next week, we're going to be looking at Second John and Third John. And these are the two shortest books in the Bible. Now, if you're a person who loves movies, especially trilogies, you can't think of Second and Third John as like the sequel to First John. That's not really how they operate. So Second John and Third John are written to completely different audiences. First John was written to several churches in a certain region. Second John is written to a single church, and Third John is written to an individual named Gaius. Now, whenever we consider the spread of the gospel, and especially the circulation of these early church letters, uh, we don't always appreciate the miracle that it was, that it could spread so quickly throughout that part of the world in that time. You may not realize this, but the church grew from just 25,000 people to 25 million people in just 300 years. I think we take for granted how quickly it all spread and we don't realize how even the, the big, bad, evil Roman Empire played a part in the spreading of this gospel in these letters. Because during this time, much of the Roman Empire, they spoke what language? They spoke Greek. That was the common language. And these letters are all written, many of them are written in the Greek language. And there was also this intricate network of paved roads in the Roman Empire. So it's really interesting when you think about how these things were utilized to, to spread the gospel and these early uh, letters to these churches. And many of these roads, of course, can be seen today. This is in Italy, I believe. And someone decided to get artistic and do a subway rendering of the Roman roads in that time around the Mediterranean Sea. And you can just see the network and how intricate it is and, and how Rome, this is partly how they ruled the empire, was this, this network of highways and roads. Now, why did they make this a priority? Well, they had this vast empire, and they wanted to keep the peace. So one of the ways to keep peace is to be able to, to quickly mobilize an army. And, but this also would allow commerce and information to travel more quickly as well. So this time of peace and prosperity spanned from 27 BC to 180 AD, and it was called Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. And as Rome is building this infrastructure so they can mobilize this army and keep the peace, what's interesting is that God uses that to mobilize the gospel and bring about his peace of the gospel to the world. So the truth of the gospel is able to spread quickly simply because, partly because of, of timing and, and God's timing as it related to this, this time in, in, the world, in world history. And if the, true, if the true gospel can travel more quickly in that time, so what else can travel more quickly? Well, false information and false teaching. So false teachers and prophets, they could spread their messages just as easily. So as the, the true gospel teachers went throughout this part of the world and they could spread the gospel so false teaching could also 
uh, take root as well. Now, I know you're already thinking of a parallel, a common parallel today. So what is this like today? Well, it's like online information, right? It's incredible what has happened just in the last 30 years. I can think back when my parents would tell me stories of when they, when they saw their first television. And I thought, they just sound so old when they talk about things like that. And then uh, I can recall, though, telling my own kids the first time I ever saw the internet. And it was in the fall of 1993, and I was doing this college trip, looking at some colleges, and I was at Cedarville University in Ohio, and I was staying in the room of a guy that went to my school, my high school in Virginia, and he pulls up this thing on his computer, and he says, hey, check this out. You can see last night's NBA scores on my computer. And it was just text. There was no pictures. And we thought, wow, that's amazing. And we're just intrigued by this thing. I'm telling my kids this story, and they're thinking like, man, Dad, you sound really old, you know? And, but it's amazing what's happened just in 30 years with information and technology. MIT did a study in 2018, and they discovered that false news spreads faster, 70% more quickly than, than true information. The people are 70% more likely to share a false story than a true one, because let's be honest, the truth is usually boring, right? False things tend to spread more quickly because they're, they're more often sensationalized, and this is true today. It was true back then. We've got to be really aware more than ever about discerning truth from error. Now, normally we think that we're supposed to be, as Christians, we're supposed to be hospitable to just anyone and everyone. But John warns this church to not show hospitality to those that are bringing a false message about Jesus to the early church. We're going to look at how this can happen today. Look at 2 John chapter, there's only one chapter, verse 1. 2 John, verse 1. It says, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Now, at times, we often will skip over the greetings in a letter like this, but there are some really important ideas here. Because John refers to himself as the elder, indicating that he's an older man but he cares deeply for this younger church and their congregation. Now, I know today we see often a gap between the older and the younger generations, and this can happen, of course, in the church context, that as we age, we can start to become jaded and cynical toward younger generations, and they might be suspicious of the older generation. I think especially how this can happen in my role as a youth pastor um, in areas like fashion, when I see my students and what they will start to wear, and I will think to myself, okay, so, so we're going to do that again, huh? Okay. And it seems to come full circle and go in this cycle, especially right, like right now, we're in a weird time right now, because it's like the girls have gone back to the 90s with their, their baggy jeans and their Doc Martens, and the guys have gone back to the 80s with their perms and their short shorts and their mustaches and mullets. Like, we're, it's a dark time right now. I mean, can we at least agree on the same decade? At least do that. But you, it's interesting because in, in a position like that I'm in, you can look at those things, and, you, and just, that's just an ex, a funny example, but other ways as well that you start to look at and go, you know, I, are, are we still doing that? Are we still going to do that? 
And you, as we age, we start to become, we can become hardened and cynical and jaded towards the younger generation. But what's encouraging here is that John doesn't allow his age to harden his heart toward this younger generation. And that's what I want to be. He is a, he is a soft, he is a, an old man with a soft heart toward this younger generation. I think in the last service, I talked to Coach McQueen there in the middle toward the back, and a great example of someone who is an, an older man, but he is someone with a soft heart, especially towards the younger generation, and an example for all of us, really, to have that mindset as we age, that we don't become cynical and jaded towards those that are younger than us, because John didn't allow himself to do that. He maintained this posture toward this young church, and he... He was someone that had a soft heart towards them. Now, what does he mean by elect lady and her children? Well, some think it means a woman and her kids, but if you look at the greater context, it is most likely a local church. John is referring to a church as she, femini, it's a feminine word, and the people in the congregation as her children. Now, John uses an interesting phrase as he describes his relationship to this church, He says, whom I love in truth. Now, what does that mean? Well, one writer defines it as to love in a manner consistent with the reality that Christ has brought. Now, what does that mean? Well, today we often pit truth and love against one another. We can see truth as as of the mind or intellect and love as of the heart or of the emotions. I love what uh, Karen Job says. She says, one cannot love genuinely apart from the truth, and one does not know truth truly until one loves. We have this misconception that, that love is blind, or it's always blind. And, and we, we might use verses like Proverbs ten twelve, where it says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. We see love sometimes as ignoring or refusing to see sin, but that's not really love. True love is seeing the reality of someone's sin, but loving them still. Love may cover a wrong, but the wrong still has to be recognized. So think about Jesus as it relates to love and truth. Jesus, as he loves us, doesn't simply do what little kids do and and put his hands over his eyes or fingers in, in his ears and pretend to not know about our sin. Because not only does he see it fully, but he, he takes it and he, he bears the weight of it upon himself. But as we have seen throughout John's writing, God doesn't want us living under sin's power anymore. He doesn't want us walking in it anymore. So if a brother or sister is walking in sin, it is not loving to pretend it's not happening and just let them continue down that pathway. So a great question for us to answer for ourselves is, where do we avoid telling someone the truth because it feels unloving? And where are we telling the truth but doing so in a way that is unloving? You see, there's always a a strong connection between love and truth. Look at verse four. John says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning. 
so that you should walk in it. So John mentions two ideas that we've covered already a lot in the series. So I'm not going to belabor those ideas, and that's loving one another and obeying God's commands. But he uses some different language here. He, he, three times he mentions the word walking. So what does that imply? You know, we often think of truth as something to believe, but truth is something in which we walk, something we inhabit. And in verse four, he says he rejoiced greatly when he heard some in their church were walking in the truth. Now, the word children does not mean their kids, but people in their congregation, their spiritual children. You know, one of the, my favorite things in, in my role as a youth pastor is to see them years after high school still walking in the truth. I've seen, I've seen many students come through and just walk away and abandon the faith. That happens a lot. They profess in high school, but then they show their true colors and they, they, you realize they weren't really a true believer and they abandon the faith once they, once they leave sometimes. That does happen. But what I find so encouraging and where I derive so much joy is seeing them years later living in community or living on mission, sometimes even returning back to TBC to work with our students or to find ways to live on mission here in our city, seeing them honor God as a single person or honor God in how they navigate dating, engagement, and marriage. One of my favorite things when a student says, would you come to our premarital counseling for us? And I can see how over the years, what we've talked about time and time again has really taken root, and there is nothing that brings me greater joy than to witness that. So we can't just look at what's happening right now as success. In my role, sometimes, I think of uh, Connect Weekend about a month ago, we had over 200 students down there at the Outback worshiping God, and as, as easy as it is to get excited about a full room of students, or even a bunch of kids wanting to do something like impact or a mission trip, I've got to be careful because I love those events, but are they walking in truth for the long haul? What's happening 10, 15, 25 years down the road? There's nothing that brings me greater joy than that. And there's nothing that brings John greater joy. Look at verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, we have discussed this in 1 John, but the incarnation of Jesus was under attack in the early church, and some did not believe that Jesus could be fully God and fully man because they viewed the material world as inherently evil. We've talked about that a lot throughout the series. And they would ask the question, how could a perfect God take on imperfect human flesh? Now, you might ask the question, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, there is deep theology tied to it because if Jesus is going to atone for the sin of mankind, then he had to become a man if he's going to take our place and be a substitute for us. But if he was going to truly be a substitute for us, then the substitute had to be perfect and had to be fully God. This is why it's so important. 
So to confess that Jesus came in the flesh does not simply recognize that he was a historical person, but acknowledges that the redeeming significance of his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. And John calls anyone in opposition to this a deceiver or an antichrist, meaning against Christ. For John, calling the incarnation into question, those are fighting words for him. So we discussed this in in the introduction, that in the first century, gospel truth spread quickly, but so did false teaching. And I believe that the verses 9 through 11 is the main idea of this letter. It's John's most pressing issue. It's to keep false teachers from influencing other churches. And he calls out those in verse 9, and he says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Other ways of saying that phrase, goes beyond or goes too far, wanders away from. More modern, recent examples would be of people that, that, that call into question the full humanity and the full deity of Jesus would be Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or the Christian Science Movement or the New Age Movement. We don't have time to unpack each one, but they, in their own way, call into question the full humanity and deity of Jesus, and they are false cults who do not hold to the historical Christian doctrines. And in a sense, they have gone on ahead, as John writes here. One writer captured the meaning this way, everyone who innovates in their beliefs. These are those who want to get real innovative and creative in their theology. So the false teachers that John addresses They have allowed this this Gnostic philosophy to dictate their theology, and we can see this happening today where some will allow worldly philosophies to influence their theology. And I think this is so important because when you go back to the beginning of the letter, you're going to see two concepts. In verse 4, we see the concept walking in the truth, but we also see abiding, And the Christian life can be a little bit what seems like a contradiction or a paradox because these words seem to go against one another because one implies, one is walking. One implies movement, but the other implies dwelling or remaining or staying put. There is walking in the truth, but there's also an abiding Now, some people think that spiritual growth means that we begin to move away from these essential doctrines or beliefs to ideas that sound more enlightening, but this is to go on ahead, to run out in front of Jesus, to go places that he does not go. And some go so far, they they fall off a cliff into heresy or outright apostasy. Now, I know that you can think of examples of individuals or or maybe churches or whole denominations where this is taking place. I think of uh, the church my wife and I got married in. This is a picture of their auditorium. And we really had no connection to this church. It's in in the western part of Fort Worth. You can probably guess why we picked it, because it was pretty and they had a middle aisle, right? The two things needed for a wedding. And we really knew nothing much about this church. We just decided it for, for this venue for our wedding. 
And, uh, and we took our kids back there a few years ago, actually many years ago now, uh, just to get a photo op on the stage right there where mom and dad got married. I think we told them, we're like, yeah, this is a spot where uh, dad kissed the bride. And they're like, ew, that's gross. Don't talk about that. And, uh, but what's interesting is uh, this church, as I began to look more into it in recent years, they are um, fairly liberal in their theology, especially as it relates to issues of sexuality and gender identity. But what's really interesting, though, is when we had our wedding there, I was going to have a friend of mine uh, play guitar, and someone else is going to sing and do a song on our wedding ceremony. And, and my friend, it's kind of a big auditorium, so my friend said, um, well, can I, can I plug my acoustic guitar into an amp? And the person who's in charge there for our wedding that was part of the church said, we really kind of have strict rules about what we allow in our auditorium. We, we have an organ and a piano, but if you plug in the guitar, well, then it will become electric, and we can't have that in our auditorium. And so my friend had to play with, nothing, with no microphone with his guitar because of this rule that they had. And I started to think, haven't we gotten it backwards? Where they've gone super permissive in their theology, but not so much in their methodology. Very conservative in their methodology. I think some churches, denominations, they hold on to traditional methods, but want to get really creative in their theology. They, as John says, they go on ahead and they depart from the teaching of Christ. Here at TBC, we want to be a church that holds to the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, but willing to be flexible and creative in our methods. So one example of that would be, many of you all know what impact is. Happens every year here at TBC or in the surrounding areas. And, um, and listen, if you don't know what that is, basically they t- we've taken a, um, a, instead of doing VBS style things here at the church, led by adults in the summertime, we decided many years ago to put this ministry in the hands of about 120 high school and junior high students. And many of you all help out with that ministry every year. And we do clubs all over our city at splash pads and people's backyards and uh, apartment complexes, youth clubs all over the city. And I have to admit that every year we do this, I feel a bit strange because people, adults will walk up and say, man, this is an amazing program. Like they'll say things like, how did you guys come up with this? And I've got to admit, it wasn't my idea. I inherited this program. And I'll be honest with you, If someone had brought it to me 20 years ago, I'm not sure I would have bought in. If they said, let's put this in the hands of of those that are aged 13 to 18, I would say, do you know any teenagers and just how they are? I'm not sure I would have bought into it if it had been brought to me as an idea. So I inherited it, this, this great innovative idea, and now we've just seen it grow and grow and grow each and every year. So I want to encourage us, we, we need to innovate in our methodology, but let's hold to essential truth in our theology. And so these deceivers, John calls them antichrist, meaning against Christ. They act like they're on the team, but they are running out ahead of Jesus, working against him. We've got to be clear about two things in this passage. The kind of person John is speaking about And when he says, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, what's he referring to? 
he is not talking about unbelievers or people of other religions. The people he's talking about are people that claim Christ. They claim to be Christian. And first of all, he's referring to teachers of false doctrine, not simply people who believe false doctrine. A teacher is someone who who carries false doctrine with them, propagating lies, leading other people astray. And how do we know it's teachers? Well, it says in verse 10, one who comes to you. This person doesn't simply believe a false message, but they bring a false message in the same way that a merchant might bring items for sale. So this does not mean a Christian cannot meet with or talk with someone who holds false views. Otherwise, how can we share our faith with anybody? Secondly, when John says, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, I believe he's referring to a church extending an official welcome or greeting to a false teacher. This is different, I think, than an individual sharing a meal with someone or uh, someone on your doorstep trying to share their ideas with you and you having a conversation with them. The very different things that we're talking about here. This letter is written to a church who probably met in someone's house. So if one of these false teachers comes into your house church, John says, do not welcome him in the same way you would someone who speaks the truth. Don't give him that kind of hospitality. Because if you do, you're giving that person a platform to continue leading people astray. As many of you know, hospitality was a really big deal back then. And as Christians would travel throughout the world carrying the true gospel, they would be taken in by other believers into their homes, into their churches, and they'd show them hospitality. And John is saying, if someone doesn't hold to the essential doctrines of the humanity and deity of Jesus, don't give this person that kind of hospitality and thus give them an endorsement for their false views. So for John to discourage hospitality to such people shows how passionate he was for the truth. Now remember, the issue that John is addressing was the humanity and deity of Jesus, and this is a foundational doctrine for the Christian faith. This is not some secondary issue. This is a primary issue. But there are some people who try to turn everything into a primary issue and a gospel issue. There are some that will do that. I love the words here of John Stott. He says, what, what John writes is relevant both to those who are so tolerant that they will condemn nobody's views and to those who are so intolerant that they condemn everybody's views which diverge from their own. There are some who don't want to condemn anyone's views. They don't want to offend anybody. Then there are those who raise every issue to a level of first importance, primary importance. And this is the opposite error and one that John will address over in 3 John. And there's a man over in that book named Diotrephes who is divisive and he's refusing hospitality to anyone, even those with sound doctrine. So we don't want to make that mistake either. And I think we see this today where people break fellowship over the smallest matters and we do it because we think we are loving the truth. So what might be some examples of of showing hospitality to someone teaching false things today? So I want to get just transparent with you today because many years ago when I first came on staff here at TBC, I'll admit to you, I had some issues theologically and I was a bit naive in some of the things that I would read and, and pass along to other people to read. 
And there was a time in this church when I, I would give out books to the seniors when they would graduate. And many years ago, there was a book, I'm not going to mention the author or the name of the book, I'm just too ashamed, honestly. And I gave this book out to my seniors. And I had read through it, but I hadn't read through it as carefully as I should. Because several years later, that same writer, that same author, wrote some more things. And, and I realized, okay, this person is now out of the camp, and is, if I can say it that way, as far as what I, would, what I would hold to theologically. And I would never give that book out today or tell someone, you should go read this person and, and, and believe what they say is true teaching. I believe there's some false teaching this person is propagating today. Other ways that we may give endorsements and maybe even unintentionally, is through social media. I think we can all be guilty of this. Maybe you're reading a really interesting book, and it is challenging to you, and, and you just want to let everybody know about it. I would caution you from just posting things online, whether it's quotes, whether it's, here's what I'm reading right now, so everyone knows what you're reading, because I don't think you really have to do that every time. Because it's one thing to read and explore, maybe those with whom you disagree, but letting everyone know about it might be seen as an endorsement or platforming or showing that person hospitality when maybe you should not. So we don't want to be so tolerant or naive that we endorse false teaching, but then we don't want to condemn everyone who holds a different view than us about a secondary issue and make that mistake. Look at verse 12. John says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. John seems to say that he has some other hard things to say, but he says he wants to come to them and say them in person because he knows something that many of us would do well to know. Whenever we have hard things to talk about, it is best for us to do it in person. John understands that something is lost when he just uses paper and ink. And he says, I want to come to you and see you in person. I think we can see a parallel again today. There was a UCLA study, and they found that 58% of communication is through body language. 35% is through vocal tone, pitch, or emphasis, and only 7% of communication occurs through the content of a message. I heard Jen Wilkin make this observation. She says, would you run a marathon with only 7% of your strength? Would you take a test with only 7% of your intellect? Would you host a holiday gathering with only 7% of your house cleaned? 7% is not enough to communicate truth and love. I think something is lost today when we use social media, email, texting to address a hard discussion with, some, with someone. If we need to address something with someone and we think it might be a difficult conversation, we need to come out of the digital shadows and stop launching digital grenades at people and meet face to face with them and have a conversation about whatever it is we're worried about or concerned about. And the reason for that is we need to be reminded sometimes that we love this person. We need to be reminded sometimes that this person actually brings us great joy. 
if we would just get in front of them face to face. I think we get our example from Jesus here. Because just as he came to us in the flesh, when he spoke truth, he did it by coming close, by entering into our world. So whenever you and I need to speak truth to someone, we can, I think, follow that example by coming close and entering into their world face-to-face, flesh and blood. These closing words of John mirror the words of Jesus over in John 15 where Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I'm amazed at how close the words of John are to the words of Jesus. Jesus wanted his joy to be in his disciples and he wanted that joy to overflow. And for John, it did. It overflowed all the way to the end of his life. And may that same joy be in us and overflow to the end of our lives as well. Father, we thank you for this short letter that is packed with such meaning and such teaching for us. God, we thank you for the encouragement that we see from John, someone who was an older man but loved this young church immensely. And it brought him such joy. And God, would you, would you forgive us as we age, we can become so cynical and jaded sometimes towards the younger generation. God, help us not be like that. Help us to have a soft heart towards those younger than us, recognizing that we were once there and you've brought us from so much. God, help us to remember that and recognize that. God, we also pray for anyone in here that might be falling for false teaching. As the culture goes a certain direction, we pray that you'd help us not to fall prey to those ideas out there in the world. Help us to to hold to the essential truths and doctrines of the Christian faith. But God, help us to also make sure we make the primary things primary and the secondary things secondary. God, may we never divide over secondary issues and keep the gospel at the center. We pray this in your name. Amen.